Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want to pray for you. I would ask you to pray for me. And I would also ask, would you pray for the person sitting next to you that they would be impacted by God's word today? Don't say their name out loud or anything like that. Uh, But just as we silently pray now, pray for the person sitting next to you that they would be impacted by the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now ready, eager, hunger to hear your word. And we pray, Lord, you would give us understanding. I pray for grace and help to speak clearly, faithfully, to exalt your son. And I pray, Lord, for those listening, that the beauty of Christ would be on hearts and minds, that obedience would seem more precious than it does now. And we, we pray, Father, that the unfolding of your word would put great light in front of our path so we see how to walk. Please give your light as your words unfolded. Take our simple thinking. Give us deep understanding of, of who you are and what you want of our lives. Do all that and more, Lord, through your word going forth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Has anyone ever accused you of being too judgmental? Has anyone ever accused you? I'm looking at some of you in the eye right now. Has anyone ever accused you, Colin, of being too judgmental? Maybe. Kyle, has anyone ever accused you of being too judgmental? Well, a teenager named Natalie storms out of the house and tells her parents, don't judge me. Except she kind of turned her head a little bit more than I just did. Don't judge me. But at school, she hears glowing compliments by her peers on her radical new hairstyle and her new clothes. Glowing compliments from her peers. And she loves it. When she comes home, her younger sibling says, Hey, Natalie, what's up with your new look? Humble, kind. Her little brother is always very nice. He says it with great gentleness. What's up with your new look, Natalie? She snaps, don't judge me. Complete with, again, a a nasty facial expression and the head tilt and the whole, she throws it all at her brother. Do you see the problem there? Just that little scenario. Do you see the the inconsistency? The problem is not in how Natalie looks per se. Maybe if you're her parent, you would say otherwise. The problem is not in how she looks per se, but her attitude of her faulty logic. Rather than telling everyone, family members and friends at school, don't judge me, no one can judge me. Did you see what she was doing? If someone judged her in a way that she liked, she would receive it. She wouldn't say, don't judge me, to her friends who gave her compliments. But if someone even questioned or opposed her look, she would say, don't judge me. If you had something good to say to her, she would welcome it. Otherwise, zip it. Who is Natalie? Natalie is all of us. Natalie is every single one of us. We, we might not say that out loud, so sassy and bold, don't judge me. But we've all thought that, haven't we? There's times where we scream that out loud in our mind at someone else, and they don't know because we smile at them when we do it. Natalie is all of us. And just like that teenager's mind is tangled in knots of how fair judgment works... Interestingly, in our passage today, if you read it too quickly and you just stay on the surface, it sounds like Jesus doesn't understand the mantra of our day, don't judge me. Jesus begins our passage today saying, do not judge. But then the next five or six verses, he proceeds to show us how to judge other people. What's, what's going on? Well, I want to invite you to, to see what, what's going on. Let's untangle what Jesus is saying Go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 6. 
As you're turning there, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount that we've came back to a few times this year. Uh, We're in the final chapter of a three chapters long sermon. And in this final chapter, chapter 7, the the core theme has not changed. No matter which chapter you're in, no matter which cluster of verses, the Sermon on the Mount is all a kingdom manifesto, meaning this royal charter by the King of Kings, Jesus himself, even though his kingship is veiled after the cross and resurrection, it'll be seen. Even though his kingship is somewhat veiled, he's giving a kingdom manifesto. He's telling his followers, if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom, here's how you are to live. Here's how you display your heavenly citizenship on earth now. That's true no matter where you are in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're in a wonderful section today on judging others and discernment that that takes. So let's look together at the first six verses, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. God's word says this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Amen. Specks and logs, pearls and pigs. What is Jesus talking about here and how do these things fit together? What is this? Well, I pray that as we go through this, we would understand the wisdom Jesus holds forth as he's teaching us how to rightly evaluate those around us, Christians and non-Christians, and especially ourselves. That's what he's teaching us here. And if we judge others rightly, we're going to be able to speak with discernment. This is all getting, driving at what Jesus is doing here. The word hypocrite was mentioned in verse 5. And we understand Jesus is ridding his followers of hypocrisy. A judgmental hypocrisy. He'd already warned his followers about hypocrisy in their religious devotion, in the way they give and pray and do fasting. And he knows that hypocrisy is a danger, not just in religious devotional tasks that we do, but even in our interpersonal relationships. He also knows just as we can mishandle our wealth, like we saw a few verses earlier in the previous chapter, we can also mishandle caring well for one another. So here, in the passages we just read, Jesus is giving his kingdom followers great restraint in their relationships. He's equipping them how to judge others well, to not be those who judge unfairly. And this is a wonderful text that we have to work through. The core principle is given in verse 1. The supporting reasoning behind it is given in verse 2. Illustrations are given in verses 3 and 4. Application is given in verse 5. And application is even furthered in verse 6. This is all packaged together. And all of these verses are saturated with the second person singular, you. That word you. Jesus is aiming this squarely at those listening to him. And even though he says you a lot in these verses, there's actually three types of people mentioned here. Three types of people. They're all sinful people. They sin in different ways. And we must be wise to evaluate and judge all three types of people that Jesus mentions if we would be discerning and represent the kingdom well. Those three types of people are going to be what we hang our thoughts upon, hooks to hang our thoughts throughout this sermon. We're going to begin with a question, is it okay to judge anyone at all? And then we're going to follow into these three categories of people. So here's the structure of our our time in the passage today. We're going to answer the question, is it okay to judge anyone at all, followed by these three types of people. First, yourself. 
Judge yourself rightly is going to be the first point. Second, other Christians. Judge other Christians rightly is going to be the second point. And third, non-Christians. Judge non-Christians rightly. That's what Jesus wants you to do from this passage. So is it okay to judge anyone? And then how do you judge yourself? How do you judge other Christians? How do you judge non-Christians? That's where this passage is headed. Let's get into it. First, is it okay to judge anyone at all? Well, look again at verse 1. Put your eyes back down on verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Is it okay to judge others? Jesus just said, judge not. Well, if someone was new to Christianity and saw that verse and thought or said to you, hmm, does this mean if we avoid any judgments of others that we'll get into heaven and avoid the final judgment? We can bypass the final judgment? I mean, Jesus just said, judge not that you be not judged. Hmm. No, that's not what he means. You're going to avoid the final judgment. We know that because of Hebrews 9.27, which says, as just as, it, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So I'm sorry, if you're a new Christian or new to Christianity and you're listening in today, I am not saying, and Jesus is not saying, if you just avoid any judgment of others, God, you're off the hook with God. He's just going to, you're just going to be great with him. That's not what this passage is teaching. We're going to see that. In fact, the passage itself helps us see that because it shows us how to judge others. Later on in chapter 7, when you get to about verse 15 or 16, Jesus wants us to, to learn how to judge false teachers, judge people by their fruits. So just the context alone teaches us that we are supposed to judge. So what does Jesus mean when he says, judge not? The measure you use will be measured back to you. Well, it sounds kind of like the yardstick that you use to measure others might get turned around on you. The microscope that you put others under might get turned around to you. Jesus is talking about interpersonal relationships here. But again, you may, before we get in deeper, you may be wondering, but wait a minute. I thought the New Testament tells us not to judge others. It does. James chapter 2 says not to judge others unfairly in favoritism. That's James 2. James 4 says don't judge others just to start arguments where you're trying to be the judge and the jury. That's James 4. Romans 2 says don't judge others because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Romans 14.10 says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If you know your Bible well, you know there's a lot of verses that say, don't, don't judge anyone else. Leave that to God. But have you ever encountered a verse like 1 Corinthians 5.12, where the scriptures say, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There's a tension in the New Testament. So if you want to answer that question, is it okay to judge others? That's, a, that's kind of a loaded question because it requires nuance. Yes, in one sense, you don't judge others because that's up to God. He is the judge, capital J. He holds final judgment. He alone knows the secrets of the heart. But in another sense, there is a horizontal, human-to-human -human level where, where we do judge. And that's what we see here. I don't know if it's something that you want in your life, but I hope you want it. Do you want to be able to judge others well? Because what this passage is warning against that we're about to see is, is it okay to judge others? Well, not if you're going to be excessively critical, rigid, severe, hypercritical, fault-finding, nitpicky, condemning, critical spirit, a judgmental attitude. That's the big thought cloud of words that, that we're trying to get rid of. Isn't it hard to not be a judgmental person? I'm looking out right now at some parents. Isn't it hard? I know it is for me. There's times where I come to the end of the day and I realize all I've been doing today is telling my kids what they've been doing wrong. 
I haven't been encouraging them at all. Hmm. I've been extremely judgmental today. But isn't that true in the place where we work? When we gather around with other family members? It's so easy to become judgmental where that just becomes the lens that feels normal. Especially in those areas where we've been hurt by others. The judgmental attitude is kind of a defense mechanism. I know it can be hard. Depending on where you work or who your family members are or extended family, the judgmental attitude just seems to be normal. And it is normal according to our flesh, which is why Jesus wants to rid his followers of it. Being a citizen of the heavenly kingdom and having a judgmental, critical attitude are not commensurate. And Jesus wants to help us here. And here's why all of this is at stake and is so important. Without these truths of the Sermon on the Mount right here being obeyed, Jesus knows that the community of faith is at risk to being soured from within if his followers don't rid themselves of their hypercritical, fault-finding judgmentalism, their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy. If they don't obey this section of the Sermon on the Mount, they may take the arsenal of truths he's been giving them in the previous chapters about how to look at the law and the Beatitudes and all these things and just start going around telling people, you're not doing the Beatitudes, you're not obeying the law the right way. You're, you're. He knows he's given them, in some sense, a loaded gun of truth, and they could aim that gun in hurtful ways at one another instead of taking aim at their own sin. So brothers and sisters, this passage that we're, we're moving through, it's actually a call to love others well. Love brothers and sisters in the family of God well, and even to judge outsiders appropriately. And this passage, if it's obeyed, brings safety, stability, it infuses life-giving humility into the people of God. It works wonders for the community of faith. And Jesus is actually helping protect them. He knows about the persecution that's coming later to his followers and if they don't judge and understand outsiders well, they're going to heap on more undue persecution upon themselves. So there's an inward benefit and an outward benefit if they would obey this. So let's look at those three types of people he mentions. Track with me here. First, yourself. Yourself. The first point, the first thing we've got to do, Jesus is calling us to do to have discernment, is to judge yourself rightly. Judge yourself rightly. We see this in verse 3 with some hyperbole. Jesus draws upon imagery from his many years as a carpenter in the workshop, and he drives home a clear point. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck? You could even put the word sawdust. Just think carpenter's workshop. Why do you see the speck or the sawdust that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log or the plank or the two-by-four that's in your own eye? Well, the answer is because sin distorts our own vision. If we're going to judge ourselves rightly, there's some principles that these verses are laying out. The first principle is we should assume that we have blind spots. If you're going to judge yourself rightly, assume that you have blind spots. Did you see that there in verse 3? You can see specks in others' eyes, but you don't notice what's going on in your own eye. That's a blind spot. Sin distorts our own vision. We're blind to our own faults, aren't we? Yours and mine, yours is described as a, a log, a plank, a beam of wood. Consider the material density, the quantity that a, a beam of wood takes up versus a speck of wood, a splinter, a piece of sawdust. Which takes up more space? Which is more dense? The log. But that's the very thing in verse 3 that's missed, that's not seen. This is helping us see that sin has devastating effects. Brothers, sisters, have you taken to heart the fact that you do not see all of your own sin? You don't. There's a second principle here, not just that we should assume we have blind spots of sin, but if we're going to judge ourselves rightly, another principle is that 
we are more prone to notice and want to remove the sins of others than deal with our own sins. So I guess you could shorten that principle and just say, we care about dealing with other people's sin instead of dealing with our own. When we do see it. You say, how do do you get that from the passage? Well, look a little closer there, verse 4. Verse 3 is just something seen. Notice verses 3 and 4 sound the same, but something is heightened in verse 4. Verse 4 moves from not just seeing something to trying to do something about it. How can you say to your brother? Now you're not just seeing, you're saying. How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck or the splinter out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? Why is it? The scriptures are showing us here. Why is it that we're so ready to notice and act upon the specks and sawdust in others' faces but fail to act upon our own defects, failures, faults? Well, it's because we have an attitude that reeks of judgmentalism. We're just looking at other people. We're not judging ourselves rightly. We're too busy judging other people in self-righteousness and hypocrisy. There's a a third principle here. If we're going to judge ourselves rightly, we see this principle that your own vision of yourself and others is best and beneficial when you are humble, actively at work, removing the logs of sin from your own eyes. He says there in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We can illustrate this. Imagine two people are going out to have dinner. It's not a date. Don't think of a date. Two good friends are going out to have dinner, though. And one person looks at the other person and notices they've got an eyelash on their cheek during dinner. And they start to get really annoyed. Get that eyelash. Come on, get it off. No, you missed it. Get it off. Here, let me get it. And they can't get it, and they're they're licking their finger. They're trying to get it. They're making a scene in the restaurant. Get the eyelash off your face. I can't focus. I can't talk to you with that there. Get that off. Finally, the eyelash gets brushed off as a waiter wisps behind that wind, knocks it off. Okay, now we can talk again. So distracted by that. And that person that was so bent on getting rid of the eyelash, a little bit later in the meal is like, excuse me, I need to use the restroom, and they leave. And when they go to the restroom, they look in the mirror and they notice from the spaghetti they've been eating, there's parsley flakes all over their own teeth, green flakes of parsley. They notice there's spaghetti sauce all over their their mouth and face. It's even stained their shirt and their clothes. And they're pierced to the heart in that moment. They realize, whoa, whoa. friend of mine was so gracious maybe they were embarrassed but they were at least so gracious to not try to get all that off my face I was so worried about that eyelash it can cause you to tear up to think about it that's how we act all the time when we try to point out the problems other people have my heart grows warm in this moment because I think about all the, the arguments I've had with my own wife about things she needs to fix or do differently. When she can see all the things I need to fix or do differently. And I act like I have nothing to fix. Nothing to change. Nowhere to grow. If you can understand that analogy of the restaurant or this carpenter analogy of the beam, the sawdust, the speck, you are on the path to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. And here's the deepest principle of judging yourself rightly. It's this, sin must loom larger in your eyes than even the sins of others you seek to help. Your own sin must loom larger in your eyes than those people you're trying to move towards to help. If not, you will be at risk for being hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous. And this passage almost begs the question to those of us who've been Christians for a little while. Lord, I don't do that. Lord, I've already taken the log out of my eye many years ago. I I can see people clearly now. 
I've cleared out all the logs, right? I have no more sin, or I don't sin as much as I used to, right? Brothers and sisters, be continual in your work of sin deforestation, taking more and more logs out of that forest of sin. Yes, your heart has been renewed by the grace of Christ, but sanctification is a process. Sanctification is a process. It's as if, you know, behind me right now, if you could picture a massive forest of trees, but it's a forest where every single tree back there, all the thick undergrowth, everything, all the trees are dead and decaying and they're not producing fruit. They're taking up space. But I don't ever turn around and clear up the junk on my own property of all the dead trees. I'm just looking out, judging everybody else. Oh, there's one, there's one bad tree in their, their lawn. Okay, well, they need to work on that. And I don't ever stop and turn around and deal with my own sin. That's the danger we can get in if we start to just fixate on the wrongs of others and fail to first deal with our own sin continually. If you're wondering, how do you take the log from your eye? How do you take the log from your eye? Well, that would be a wonderful question to ask another brother or sister that you see as godly over lunch. Or this week, ask somebody you know who's a mature Christian, hey, how do you take the log out of your own eye? How do you do it? I know one book I read that has helped me uh, be about the work of log removal. And anytime I forget and stray from that work, this book helps me get back to it. It's a book called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. He lived a few centuries ago. Repentance is how we remove the logs in our own sight. Repentance. Repentance is that grace of God's spirit whereby whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Are you repenting of sins right now, known sins that you're actively repenting of? One insight from that book, Doctrine of Repentance, by Thomas Watson. He said, if you're going to repent of sin... You need to do six things, and I'm just going to fly them at you really fast. Six words. Sight, sorrow, confession, shame, hatred, and turning. You have to have a sight for your sin, sorrow for your sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin, which leads to a turning from sin. All those components are involved in repentance. How are you doing with keeping repentance as your daily work? I'm thankful that we have a prayer confession that Daniel led us in today. It reminds us we we should be about the work of bringing our sin before God, confessing, repenting, working on it during the week. Isn't it supernatural to spend time thinking about your own sin and ways you can repent of it? Isn't that supernatural? Without God's Spirit, we don't want to dwell on our own sin, much less think about ways to repent from it and turn from it. It is an act of God's grace if you do. And that's what verse 5 is calling us to, a humble ridding ourselves of more and more sin by God's help and grace. And before we look at how to judge other Christians, we're still talking about how do you judge yourself. Can I just encourage you? Here's the encouragement. God is in the work and business by his spirit of removing logs from people's eyes. That's what he loves to do. He loves to improve your vision, your sight. We can praise God knowing that he's been about the work of log removal, beam and plank removal for a long time in our eyes. He will continue his work that he began in you. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he will bring to completion. He who began that good work in you will bring it to completion. So when you agree with God in his work that you have more sin that could be rid from your heart, You are aligning yourself with the very purposes of God. Take heart. Be encouraged. Don't just be discouraged that you have sin. Be encouraged that sanctification is a process until you are fully glorified in heaven. All those things are components of how we judge ourselves rightly. Now, the next two pieces of the judgment puzzle that we're going to see in this passage today, how to judge other Christians and how to judge non-Christians, it's going to be much shorter in terms of insights I can give you because the passage is primarily aimed at you. 
So the primary work you should be doing is ridding yourself of sin. Secondarily, flowing from that, you help others with their sin and you, you judge even non-Christians. Let's, let's take a slice out of Jesus' teaching here. for How do we judge other Christians rightly? This is the second point. If we've been humbled from our own sin awareness and we're ridding ourselves of sin and we're not being hypercritical, we're actually being humble and not prideful, how can we help others with their sin? Wouldn't you want to be a person who could actually come alongside another Christian and help them in their sin struggles? Well, there's the answer in verse 5. And verse 5 actually teaches us something about how to judge other Christians rightly. Look again at verse 5. You hypocrite, first, take the log out of your own eye. Pause right there, pause. Let's say that you have done that and you are doing that because it's a continual work. Then how do you go about judging other Christians rightly? Well, there it is in the second half of verse 5. It says this, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the humility before moving towards the sin of others. Once we then start moving towards the sin of others, what do we do? Well, here's some principles. The first one would be this. Living in community with other Christians, you will see specks in the eyes of others. Don't be surprised. Do not be surprised when you see specks, sawdust, blemishes, failures, faults in the eyes of other Christians. Sometimes we're just absolutely shocked that another Christian would ever sin. Some of us idolize other Christians and we think and talk and act like they they don't ever sin. Jesus just gave us a principle here for how to judge others rightly. And that is, expect that you probably will see a speck in the eyes of other Christians when you are living in humble repentance. He's teaching us a lesson here that we don't live solo, in isolation. We live in community We actually help one another with the specks and sins and faults and failures. Jesus expects that we will help other Christians. Did you see that in verse 5? Another principle here is beware of speck patrol syndrome. Let me say that again. Beware of speck patrol syndrome. If you're going to judge other Christians rightly, you don't just go around just... I'm I'm the inspector for if you got any specs, let me deal with it. I removed my log, you know, four or five years ago from my eye, so now all I do is just inspect and judge other Christians. Notice verse 5, it's a package deal. You first take the log out of your own eye, you'll see clearly then to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Just as you can't say that you're now no longer sinless, you can't say that now... I judge other Christians rightly because all I do is find their specs. No, you you can't just be on spec patrol. This comes out in all sorts of ways. Your tone of voice, your timing, the way you speak. We are meant to speak the truth in love. Here's a third principle. If you're going to judge other Christians rightly, remember, practice. It's a process that you must do with gentleness. You say, whoa, where where is that coming from the text? Don't people need a harsh rebuke sometimes? Well, did you notice the human organ mentioned in verse 5? It's the eye. How delicate is an eye? When you try to touch your own eye, first time you ever learn how to maybe put in contacts or eye drops or whatever, It takes some practice to learn how to even touch your own eye without bristling, much less touch the eye of another. The human organ in Jesus' masterful metaphor here is the eye. There's a principle embedded within that that it's a delicate thing to be about removing the planks from your own eye and the specks from the eyes of another if we're going to judge other Christians rightly, then we can't get mad at them when we move towards them and we're about to do eye surgery or help them and they bristle away and and scoop back from us. That should be a clue to you that either you haven't won enough trust in their life or you're not coming at them with gentleness 
Sure, it could be an issue they have, but most likely you should first think, am I approaching them rightly? Am I judging them rightly? Is this the right time to come at them? Is this the right way, the right manner, the right intensity? If we're going to judge other brothers and sisters rightly, well, we must understand that gentleness has to be a part of the process. I like how Augustine, who lived many centuries ago, gave some application when he preached on this very verse back in the 400s. Here's some example application he gave of if you're going to go up to someone else and try to help remove a speck from their eye. He said, first of all, quote, let us consider whether the other fault is such as we ourselves have never had or whether it is one we have overcome. Then if we have never had such a fault, let us remember that we are human and could have had it. But if we have had it, meaning if we have had the sin entangle us that's entangled someone else, if we have had it and we're rid of it now, let us remember our common frailty in order that mercy, not hatred, may lead us to the giving of correction and admonition. But if on reflection we find that we ourselves have the same fault as the one we are about to reprove, let us neither correct nor rebuke that one. Rather, let us bemoan the fault ourselves and induce that person to a similar concern without asking him to submit to our correction. Close quote. What good advice. We must take care when we judge other Christians. We want to do it rightly. When we judge other Christians rightly, we're, we're looking not at just our opinions of them. We're not looking at, do I like their eye color? We're looking at, do they have a speck in their eye? So we're not judging people arbitrarily for our opinions. It, it's got to be something about their character, their doctrine, or their fruitfulness as a Christian. If it's not one of those, you ought not to even likely try to judge them. We all have different favorite colors. We have different favorite foods we like to eat. We like to drive different things. We like to go different places. We have different hobbies, different interests. Some of us like to talk fast. Some like to talk slow. If we start judging one another on other secondary matters, we're going to be very guilty of the judgmentalism trap in this verse. So let's be careful in how we judge ourselves and judge others. We want to exercise great discernment. We want to show humility. And then Jesus, thirdly, gives us another group of people we actually are to judge. Dogs and pigs. Who are those people? Well, I hinted at it already, non-Christians. Wait, what do you mean? Did you just call non-Christians dogs and pigs? Jesus did. The passage we read earlier that Daniel read for us was an example of first century understanding of those who are not the lost sheep of Israel would fall into this category of dogs and pigs. And after Christ went to the cross and rose again from the grave and ascended, we're going to see how the Great Commission fits with this verse. But even Jews, ethnic Jews, could prove themselves to be dogs and pigs if they're not following the Messiah. Let's get into this third and final category. How do we judge non-Christians rightly? Well, this is verse 6. Look very closely at verse 6. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What does that mean? Well, it means Proverbs 23, verse 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Jesus describes fools, foolish people who despise holy things and precious pearls. What are those? I was helped this week by uh, a commentator named Jonathan Pennington. He's a Bible scholar. He said, pearls in early Judaism often refer to valuable sayings or excellent thought, which inclines one to interpret what is holy as teachings or truths. You don't need a commentary to teach you that. You know why? If you just kept reading in the book of Matthew, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a pearl of great price. What are holy things? Is it just the writings of men and women in the local newspaper? No, the holy things are the very breath and scripture of God, the things of God. 
You know what the holy things of God are. It's his word. It's the gospel. So hang on to that idea for a second. If sharing the gospel and God's word and precious truths of scripture, message of the kingdom, if these are holy things, if these are pearls, what does Jesus mean when he starts talking about dogs and pigs? Because we've got to put these ideas together. Let's think about the meaning of these animals here. Dogs and pigs understood in the first century are very different than you may readily think of dogs and pigs now. It's easy for your mind to think of dogs as a loyal animal in a person's home or something cute, cuddly, at least while it's a puppy, a dog. But in the first century, dogs were filthy animals just running around trying to satisfy their appetites, filthy, traveling in packs, scavengers. And pigs, to the Jewish audience first hearing this, they would know immediately, yeah, pigs, those are unclean animals. According to the Old Testament laws, we don't eat pigs. We are not pig farmers. Pigs are filthy. Pigs trample around on things. So let's combine the thought here. Let's put it all together. Who are those who disregard and trample on and attack the things of God? It's those people in the world who Jesus would categorize here as dogs and pigs. It's those people who are hardened and hostile to the faith. If you need a nice, clean, simple answer, who are dogs and pigs? It's those who are overly hardened and hostile to the faith. They are in open opposition. They hate, despise. They blatantly disregard the truths, the pearls of Christianity. They have adamant unbelief. These would be those people who are prone to mock and ridicule or even argue with you about how the things of God are not true and even want to harm you for it or completely disregard what you're saying over and over. The aroma of the Beatitudes never leaves the Sermon on the Mount. They're actually kind of embedded here. You remember how he said earlier, blessed are you if others persecute you? Well, Jesus is wanting to help his followers see there's a way that you could be persecuted that you actually acted in great folly. You were not being wise, and that's why persecution came to you. Jesus wants to help them avoid attack. Did you see how the end of verse 6 ended? Lest they turn to attack you. So if we put all this together, we could ask maybe this true or false question. True or false? You should share the gospel over and over with the same person, regardless if they get increasingly angry with you. That was a big sentence. True or false? You should share the gospel over and over and over with someone, regardless of whether they get increasingly angry with you or not. According to verse 6, false. You should not keep throwing the gospel, the pearls of the gospel, in that person's face if they keep getting increasingly angry with you. Some of you, all the alarm bells are going off in your brain. Wait a minute. I've always been told you share the gospel with everyone all the time. No excuses. No. Well, how does that square with verse 6? Can you see that Jesus is actually helping you fulfill the Great Commission in wisdom here? If there's someone who's hostile, hardened, antagonistic to the faith, and you obey verse 6, you know that, okay, you can move on and start talking to the next person not be unduly burdened with trying to get in a sparring match with that person. This has great evangelism implications. It had great implications for the first century because if Christians disregarded this teaching of Christ, they would welcome great attack upon themselves. Jesus does not want his followers to be up in people's faces and annoying people with the gospel. There's a difference in sharing the gospel winsomely, persuasively, sharing Christian truths in a helpful way. And there's another way to do it where you're just pestering someone about religious things. We all know what it looks like when someone's doing that to a non-believer. Your task, brothers and sisters, is to judge non-Christians rightly to think, are they being a dog and pig right now in the conversation? Are they so hardened, they just want to tear me apart. They're so angry with what I'm trying to say to them. 
They're not listening. They're just being angry. Are they being a pig? They just want to trample over these things and disregard it. It takes great discernment to judge those, those moments. But it offers you great encouragement that there may be some times where you wait for a different opportunity. Now, we know from earlier on the Sermon on the Mount, what do we do with our enemies? If someone proves themselves to be a dog or a pig, an enemy of the gospel, we pray for them. Jesus had already taught his followers, love your enemies and pray for them. There are ways to love family members, extended family, and coworkers who are dogs and pigs. There's ways to still love them, still ways to pray for them, but you might not be so quick to be throwing your pearls out in front of them of all these scriptural truths. It takes wisdom. This is a verse that helps us pursue the Great Commission. It helps us be wise in evangelism. It helps us understand if God has not softened the person's heart, that might be a clue to you to, okay, back up from some of the things you're trying to push down their throat and you go talk to somebody else. It takes wisdom. Jesus is helping us judge non-Christians by basically telling us, hey, go find out what type of animal they are. Get in a conversation with them. You may find that a year later, they're not that vicious dog or that filthy pig in terms of how they respond to the gospel and spiritual things. They've been softened somehow. They don't have their fangs out. Let's be wise. Let's judge other Christians. Let's judge non-Christians rightly. We see this in Acts 18 when Paul was opposed and reviled. He shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on. I'll go to the Gentiles. He treated even ethnic Jews as dogs and pigs when they weren't receiving the pearls. Paul would even say to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Newsflash. That's code language for he's, he's a dog or a pig. He's totally against the things of the gospel. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, Timothy, for he strongly opposed our message. So I'm not saying if you get in a conversation with somebody and they have a few questions, suddenly you just shut down. Okay, well, they're resisting the truth. Look and be aware for if someone is strongly opposing your message. They're getting angry. They're getting in your face or they're disregarding it. They're wanting you to stop talking. Beware. There's examples of this throughout the scriptures. I love how when Esther comes before the pagan king, she doesn't throw out a bunch of pearls to save her people. She simply says, my people have been given over to death and annihilation to be destroyed. She doesn't start throwing all these lofty Old Testament pearls of we are God's promised people. God has always promised all these things. She doesn't do that. She just speaks the truth in love. She leaves some of the pearls out of it because she knows she's talking to a pagan king who cares nothing for the things of God. Or when Nehemiah goes before King Artaxerxes, he could have said, Artaxerxes, Jerusalem is this promised favorite Zion city of God and start throwing all these Old Testament pearls before Artaxerxes. You know what he says? He says, O king, the city of my father's lies in ruins. My father's graves lie in ruins. Can you send me back to rebuild it? He spoke in a way where he left all the pearls out of it. That is okay to do before non-Christians at times. We have the Great Commission, so it balances this out. So we do go into all the world, sharing the gospel, not knowing how the animals will respond. But this brings us to our final point that we can close in on, the gospel. Jesus has such power in the gospel message that he transforms pigs and dogs into new creation. Do you remember when you were a pig or a dog to the things of God, disregarding it, trampling over it, attacking God's word by your rebellion of wanting to just do other things? Jesus, the very one who had no specks in his eyes, No beams in his eyes. Perfect vision and sight. Everyone was tripping over him to try to put him under the microscope and find some sin, but he was sinless. God sent him to the cross so that all the beams and planks of sin that are in your eyes that weigh on you would be laid heavy on his shoulders. 
This is why Jesus went to the cross, because all of us who have ever judged others wrongly or had judgmentalism or had sin that's undealt with, Christ went to the cross and absorbed all the wrath of God for anyone who would turn to him and trust in him by faith. And to prove that this great wrath of God was absorbed, there was a sacrifice made to prove that it was all true, God rose Christ from the dead. And Jesus gives us a great task now to go out into all the world and to share these pearls of the kingdom, put truths of the kingdom out in front of people, put it in front of others, see how they respond. If they trample over it, move on, go to the next person. If they respond favorably, they have questions, they, they want to talk more, keep, keep coming with the pearls. You might help win someone to Christ. The gospel is true. It is the greatest pearl that we have. And it's only a pearl that we can give to others because Christ has changed our own hearts. If you don't know Jesus today, if you find yourself being judgmental, if you find yourself having sin, look to Christ and what he did on the cross. He shed his blood so that you could be made right with God. And brothers and sisters, if you already know God and you find yourself to be judgmental or you don't know how to remove logs from your own eye, look to the cross. That's the power for where you do change. And then go out fearlessly and share the gospel because you, you know how to judge non-Christians rightly. Do you see all the wealth of benefit and wisdom held out here? If we judge ourselves and Christians and non-Christians rightly, we will speak with great discernment with other people. We will represent well our heavenly kingdom. May God help us to do that. May we not be like Natalie, don't judge me. May we actually lean in and judge rightly according to what Jesus has told us, the great judge himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the way you teach us how to walk, how to move, how to live in this world in a way that pleases you. Help us, Father, to truly judge ourselves by the light of your word. Help us to be about ridding ourselves of sin continually in repentance. We thank you for that work in us. Help us to be gracious to our brothers and sisters. Help us to be wise to non-believers. Lord, help us to live out this passage as you've already helped us know the gospel. Help us to live this out too. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your instruction. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.